Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we have the finale of Triplanetary by E.E. E. Doc Smith. The situation is delicately poised. Humanity has learned some of the alien Nevian technology and has developed a supership that can withstand their attacks and travel faster than light. That supership has travelled far out into space and suddenly, unexpectedly, has discovered Roger, the space pirate we met early on in the story, rebuilding his artificial planet. And on Nevia, Costigan, Cleo and Bradley are captives, victims of scientific experiments by the amphibious Nevians and left as zoo exhibits. Now Cleo and Bradley have been seized again, and for who knows what reason. Can they escape? Will Rodebush and Cleveland's supership be able to face down Roger the space pirate once again? And how will the clash of species between humanity and the Nevians be resolved? It's time to pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy the finale of Triplanetary by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Chapter 10. Roger Carries On As has been intimated, Grey Roger did not perish in the floods of Nevian energy which destroyed his planetoid. While those terrific streamers of force emanating from the crimson obscurity surrounding the amphibian spaceship were driving into his defensive screens, he sat impassive and immobile at his desk, his hard grey eyes moving methodically over his instruments and recorders. When the clinging mantle of force changed from deep red into shorter and even shorter wavelengths, however, Baxter, Hartkopf, Chatelier... An Andresung, Penrose, Nishimura, Mursky, he called off a list of names. Report to me here at once. The planetoid is lost, he informed his select group of scientists when they had been assembled, and we must abandon it in exactly 15 minutes, which will be the time required for the robots to fill this first section with our most necessary machinery and instruments. Pack each of you one box of the things he most wishes to take with him, and report back here in not more than 13 minutes. Say nothing to anyone else. They filed out calmly, and as they passed out into the hall, Baxter, perhaps a trifle less case-hardened than his fellows, at least voiced a thought for those they were so brutally deserting. I say, it seems a bit thick to dash off this way and leave the rest of them, but still, I suppose... You suppose correctly. Bland and heartless Nishimura filled in the pause. A small part of the planetoid may be able to escape, which to me at least is pleasantly surprising news. I cannot carry all our men and mechanisms, therefore only the most important of both are saved. What would you? For the rest is simply what you would call the fortune of war, no? But the beautiful... began the amorous Chatelier... "'Hush, fool!' snorted Hartkopf. "'One word of that to the ear of Roger, and you too are left behind. "'Of such non-essentials the universe is full, to be collected in times of ease, "'but in times hard, to be disregarded. "'And this is a time of hardness, indeed.' "'The group broke up, each man going to his own quarters, "'to meet again in the first section a minute or so before the zero time. 
Roger's office was now packed so tightly with machinery and supplies that but little room was left for the scientists. The grey monstrosity still sat unmoved behind his dials. But of what use is it, Roger? the Russian physicist demanded. These waves are of some ultra-band, of a frequency immensely higher than anything here known before. Our screens should not have stopped them for an instant. It is a mystery that they have held so long, and certainly this single section will not be permitted to leave the planetoid without being destroyed. There are many things you do not know, Mursky, came the cold and level answer. Our screens, which you think are of your own devising, have several improvements of my own in the formulae, and would hold forever had I the power to drive them. The screens of this section, being smaller, can be held as long as will be found necessary. Power? the dumbfounded Russian exclaimed. Why, we have almost infinite power, unlimited, sufficient for a lifetime of high expenditure. But Roger made no reply, for the time of departure was at hand. He pressed down a tiny lever, and a mechanism in the power room threw in the gigantic plunger switches which launched against the Nevians the stupendous beam which so upset the complacence of Narado the Amphibian, the beam into which was poured recklessly every resource of power afforded by the planetoid, careless alike of burnout and exhaustion. Then, while all of the attention of the Nevians and practically all of their maximum possible power output was being devoted to the neutralisation of that last desperate thrust, the metal wall of the planetoid opened, and the first section shot out into space. Full-driven as they were, Roger's screens flared white as he drove through the temporarily lessened attack of the Nevians, but in their preoccupation the amphibians did not notice the additional disturbance, and the section tore on, unobserved and undetected. Far out in space, Roger raised his eyes from the instrument panel and continued the conversation as though it had not been interrupted. Everything is relative, Mursky, and you have misused gravely the term unlimited. Our power was, and is, very definitely limited. True, it then seemed ample for our needs, and is far superior to that possessed by the inhabitants of any solar system with which I am familiar, but the beings behind that red screen, whoever they are, have sources of power as far above ours as ours are above those of the Solarians. How do you know? How do you know? That power, what is it? We have, then, the analyses of those fields recorded? came simultaneous questions and exclamations. Their source of power is the intra-atomic energy of iron, complete, not the partial liberation incidental to the nuclear fission of such unstable isotropes as those of thorium, uranium, plutonium, and so on. Therefore, much remains to be done before I can proceed with my plan. I must have the most powerful structure in the macrocosmic universe. Roger thought for minutes, nor did any one of his minions break the silence. Garlain of Edor did not have to wonder why such incredible advancement could have been made without his knowledge. After the fact, he knew. He had been, and was still, being hampered by a mind of power, a mind with which, in due time, he would come to grips. "'I know now what to do.' he went on presently. In the light of what I have learned, the losses of time, life and treasure, even the loss of the planetoid, are completely insignificant. But what can you do about it? 
growled the Russian. Many things. From the charts of the recorders we can compute their fields of force, and from that point it is only a step to their method of liberating the energy. We shall build robots. They shall build other robots, who shall in turn construct another planetoid, one this time that, wielding the theoretical maximum of power, will be suited to my needs. And where will you build it? We are marked. Invisibility is now useless. Triplanetary will find us, even if we take up an orbit beyond that of Pluto. We have already left your Solarian system far behind. We are going to another system, one far enough removed so that the spy rays of Triplanetary will never find us, and yet one that we can reach in a reasonable length of time with the energies at our command. Some five days will be required for the journey, however, and our quarters are cramped. Therefore, make places for yourselves wherever you can, and lessen the tedium of these days by working upon whatever problems are most pressing in your respective researches. The grey monster fell silent, immersed in what thoughts no one knew, and the scientists set out to obey his orders. Baxter, the British chemist, followed Penrose, the lantern-jawed, saturnine American engineer and inventor, as he made his way to the furthermost cubicle of the section. "'I say, Penrose, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind.' "'Go ahead.' Ordinarily, it's dangerous to be a cackling hen anywhere around him, but I don't imagine that he can hear anything here now. His system must be pretty well shot to pieces. You want to know all I know about Roger? Exactly so. You have been with him so much longer than I have, you know. In some ways, he impresses one as being scarcely human, if you know what I mean. Ridiculous, of course, but of late, I have been wondering whether he really is human. He knows too much about too many things. He seems to be acquainted with many solar systems, to visit which would require lifetimes. Then, too, he has dropped remarks which would imply that he actually saw things that happened long before any living man could possibly have been born. Finally, he looks, well, peculiar, and certainly does not act human. I have been wondering, and have been able to learn nothing about him. As you have said, such talk as this aboard the planetoid was not advisable. You needn't worry about being paid your price, that's one thing. If we live, and that was part of the agreement, you know, we will get what we sold out for. You will become a belted earl. I have already made millions, and shall make many more. Similarly, Chatelier has had and will have his women. And Andrasung and Nishimura, their cherished revenges, Hartkopf, his power, and so on. He eyed the other speculatively, then went on. I might as well spill it all, since I'll never have a better chance, and since you should know as much as the rest of us. You're in the same boat with us, and tarred with the same brush. There's a lot of gossip that may or may not be true, but I know one very startling fact. Here it is. My great-great-grandfather left some notes which, taken in connection with certain things I myself saw on the planetoid, prove beyond question that our Roger went to Harvard University at the same time he did. Roger was a grown man then and the elder Penrose noted that he was marked like this, and the American sketched a cabalistic design. What? Baxter exclaimed. An adept of the North Polar Jupiter? Then? Yes, 
That was before the First Jovian War, you know, and it was those medicine men, really high-caliber scientists, that prolonged that war, so... But I say, Penrose, that's a bit thick. When they were wiped out, it was proved a lot of hocus-pocus. If they were wiped out, Penrose interrupted in turn. Some of it may have been hocus-pocus, but certainly most of it was not. I'm not asking you to believe anything except that one fact. I'm just telling you the rest of it. But it is also the fact that these adepts know things, and did things that take a lot of explaining. Now for the gossip, none of which is guaranteed. Roger is supposed to be of Tellurian parentage, and the story is that his father was a moon pirate, his mother a Greek adventuress. When the pirates were chased off the moon... They went to Ganymede, you know, and some of them were captured by the Jovians. It seems that Roger was born at an instant of time sacred to the adepts, so they took him on. He worked his way up through the Forbidden Society, as all adepts did, by various kinds of murder and job lots of assorted deviltries, until he got clear to the top, the 77th mystery. The secret of eternal youth gasped Baxter, awed in spite of himself. Right. And he stayed chief devil, in spite of all the efforts of his ambitious sub-devils to kill him, until the turning point of the First Jovian War. He cut away then in a spaceship, and ever since then has been working, and working hard, on some stupendous plan of his own that nobody else has ever got an inkling of. That's the story. True or not, it explains a lot of things that no other theory can touch. And now I think you'd better shuffle along. Enough of this is a great plenty. Baxter went to his own cubby, and each man of Grey Roger's cold-blooded crew methodically took up his task. True to prediction, in five days a planet loomed beneath them, and their vessel settled through a reeking atmosphere towards a rocky and forbidding plain. Then for hours they plunged along, a few thousand feet above the surface of that strange world, while Roger, with his analytical detectors, sought the most favourable location from which to wrest the materials necessary for his programme of construction. It was a world of cold. Its sun was distant, pale, and wan. It had monstrous forms of vegetation of which each branch and member writhed and fought with a grotesque and horrible individual activity. Ever and anon, a struggling part broke from its parent plant and darted away in independent existence, leaping upon and consuming or being consumed by a fellow creature equally monstrous. This flora was of a uniform colour, a lurid, sickly yellow. In form, some of it was fern-like, some cactus-like, some vaguely tree-like, but it was all outrageous, inherently repulsive to all Solarian senses, and no less hideous were the animal-like forms of life which slithered and slunk rapaciously through that fantastic pseudo-vegetation. Snake-like, reptile-like, bat-like, the creatures squirmed, crawled, and flew, each covered with a dankly oozing yellow hide, and each motivated by twin common impulses, to kill, and insatiably and indiscriminately to devour. Over this reeking wilderness, Roger drove his vessel, untouched by its disgusting, its appalling ferocity and horror. There should be intelligence of a kind, he mused, and swept the surface of the planet with an exploring beam. 
Oh yes, there is a city of sorts. And in a few minutes the outlaws were looking down upon a metal-walled city of roundly conical buildings. Inside these structures and between and around them there scuttled formless blobs of matter, one of which Roger brought up into his vessel by means of a tractor. Held immovable by the beam, it lay upon the floor, a strangely extensile, amoeba-like, metal-studded mass of leathery substance. Of eyes, ears, limbs or organs, it apparently had none, yet it radiated an intensely hostile aura, a mental effluvium concentrated of rage and of hatred. Apparently the ruling intelligence of the planet, Roger commented, Such creatures are useless to us. We can build machines in half the time that would be required for their subjugation and training. Still, it should not be permitted to carry back what it may have learned of us. As he spoke, the adept threw the peculiar being out into the air and dispassionately rayed it out of existence. That thing reminds me of a man I used to know back home. Penrose was as coldly callous as his unfeeling master. The evenest-tempered man in town... Mad, all the time. Eventually, Roger found a location which satisfied his requirements of raw materials and made a landing upon that unfriendly soil. Sweeping beams denuded a great circle of life, and into that circle leaped robots. Robots requiring neither food nor rest, but only lubricants and power. Robots insensible alike to that bitter cold and to that noxious atmosphere. But the outlaws were not to win a foothold on that planet easily, nor were they to hold it without effort. Through the weird vegetation of the circle's bare edge, there scuttled and poured along a horde of the metal-studded men, if men they might be called, who, ferocity incarnate, rushed the robot line. Mowed down by hundreds, they still came on, willing. It seemed to spend any number of lives in order that one living creature might once touch a robot with one outthrust metallic stud. Whenever that happened, there was a flash of lightning, the heavy smoke of burning insulation, grease and metal, and the robot went down out of control. Recalling his remaining automatons, Roger sent out a shielding screen against which the defenders of their planet raged in impotent fury. For days they hurled themselves and their every force against that impenetrable barrier, then withdrew, temporarily stopped but by no means acknowledging defeat. Then, while Roger and his cohorts directed affairs from within their comfortable and now sufficiently roomy vessel, there came into being around it an industrial city of metal, peopled by metallic and insensate mechanisms. Mines were sunk, furnaces were blown in, smelters belched forth into the already unbearable air their sulfurous fumes. Rolling mills and machine shops were built and were equipped, and as fast as new enterprises were completed, additional robots were ready to man them. In record time, the heavy work of girders, members and plates was well underway, and shortly thereafter, light, deft, multi-fingered mechanisms began to build and to install the prodigious amount of precise machinery required by the vastness of the structure. As soon as he was sure that he would be completely free for a sufficient length of time, Roger Garlane assembled, boiled down, and concentrated his every mental force. He probed then, very gently, for whatever it was that had been and was still blocking him. He found it, synchronised with it, 
and in the instant hurled against it the fiercest thrust possible for his Adorian mind to generate. A bolt whose twin had slain more than one member of Ador's innermost circle. A bolt whose energies he had previously felt sure would slay any living thing save only his ultimate supremacy, the all-highest of Ador. Now, however, and not completely to his surprise, that blast of force was ineffective, and the instantaneous riposte was of such intensity as to require for its parrying everything Garlane had. He parried it, however barely, and directed a thought at his unknown opponent. You, whoever you may be, have found out that you cannot kill me, no more than I can kill you. So be it. Do you still believe that you can keep me from remembering whatever it was that my ancestor was compelled to forget? Now that you have obtained a focal point, we cannot prevent you from remembering, and merely to hinder you would be pointless. You may remember in peace. Back and back went Garlane's mind, centuries, millennia, cycles, eons. The trace grew dim, almost imperceptible, deeply buried beneath layer upon layer of accretions of knowledge, experience and sensation, which no one of many hundreds of his ancestors had even so much as disturbed. But every iota of knowledge that any of his progenitors had ever had was still his. However dim, however deeply buried, however suppressed and camouflaged, he could now find it. He found it. And in the instant of its finding, it was as though Enphilistor the Erysian spoke directly to him, as though the fused elders of Erysia tried, vainly now, to erase from his own mind all knowledge of Erysia's existence. The fact that such a race as the Erysians had existed so long ago was bad enough, that the Erysians had been aware throughout all these ages of the Adorians, and had been able to keep their own existence secret, was worse. The crowning fact that the Erysians had had all this time in which to work unopposed against his own race made even Garlane's indomitable ego quail. This was important. Such minor matters as the wiping out of non-conforming cultures, the extraordinarily rapid growth of which was now explained, must wait. Edor must revise its thinking completely. The pooled and integrated mind of the innermost circle must scrutinise every fact, every implication and connotation of this new old knowledge. Should he flash back to Edor, or should he wait and take the planetoid with its hugely varied and extremely valuable contents? He would wait. A few moments more would be a completely negligible addition to the eons of time which had already elapsed since action should have been taken. The rebuilding of the planetoid, then, went on. Roger had no reason to suspect that there was anything physically dangerous within hundreds of millions of miles. Nevertheless, since he knew that he could no longer depend upon his own mental powers to keep him informed as to all that was going on around him, it was his custom to scan, from time to time, all nearby space by means of ether-borne detectors. Thus it came about that one day, as he sent out his beam, his hard grey eyes grew even harder. Mursky, Nishimura, Penrose, come here, he ordered, and showed to them upon his plate an enormous sphere of steel, its offensive beams flaming viciously. Is there any doubt whatever in your minds as to the system to which that ship belongs? None at all. Solarian, replied the Russian. To narrow it further still, Triplanetarian. 
While larger than I have seen before, its construction is unmistakable. They managed to trace us and are testing out their weapons before attacking. Do we attack or do we run away? If Triplanetarian, and it surely is, we attack coldly. This one section is armed and powered to defeat Triplanetary's entire navy. We shall take that ship, and we shall add its slight resources to our own, and it may even be that they have picked up the three who escaped me. I have never been balked for so long. Yes, we shall take that vessel, and those three sooner or later. Except for the fact that their escape from me is a matter which should be corrected, I care nothing whatever about either Bradley or the woman. Costigan, however is in a different category. Costigan handled me. Diamond-hard eyes glared balefully at the urge of thoughts to a clean and normal mind unthinkable. To your posts, he ordered. The machines will continue to function under their automatic controls during the short time it will require to abate this nuisance. One moment, a strange voice roared from the speakers. Consider yourselves under arrest by order of the Triplanetary Council. Surrender, and you shall receive impartial hearing. Fight us, and you shall never come to trial. From what we have learned of Roger, we do not expect him to surrender, but if any of you other men wish to avoid immediate death, leave your vessel at once. We shall come back for you later. Any of you wishing to leave this vessel have my full permission to do so, Roger announced, disdaining any reply to the challenge of the boys. Any such, however will not be allowed inside the planetoid area after the rest of us return from wiping out that patrol. We attack in one minute. Would not one do better by stopping on? Baxter, in the quarters of the Americans, was in doubt as to the most profitable course to pursue. I should leave immediately if I thought that that ship could win, but I do not fancy that it can. Do you? That ship? One triplanetary ship against us? Penrose laughed raucously. Do as you please. I'd go in a minute if I thought that there was any chance of us losing, but there isn't. So I'm staying. I know which side my bread's buttered on. Those cops are bluffing, that's all. Not bluffing exactly either, because they'll go through with it as long as they last. Foolish, but it's a way they have. They'll die trying every time instead of running away, even when they know they're licked before they start. They don't use good judgment. None of you are leaving? Very well. You each know what to do, came Roger's emotionless voice. The stipulated minute having elapsed, he advanced a lever and the outlaw cruiser slid quietly into the air. Toward the poised boys, Roger steered. Within range, he flung out a weapon new-learned and supposedly irresistible to any ferrous thing or creature, the red converter field of the Nevians. For Roger's analytical detector had stood him in good stead during those frightful minutes in the course of which the planetoid had borne the brunt of Narado's superhuman attack. In such good stead that from the records of those ingenious instruments, he and his scientists had been able to reconstruct not only the generators of the attacking forces, but also the screens employed by the amphibians in the neutralisation of similar beams. With a vastly inferior armament, the smallest of Roger's vessels had defeated the most powerful battleships of Triplanetary. What had he to fear in such a heavy craft as the one he now was driving, one so superlatively armed and powered? It was just as well for his peace of mind 
that he had no inkling that the harmless-looking sphere he was so blithely attacking was in reality the much-discussed, half-mythical supership upon which the Triplanetary Service had been at work for so long, nor that its already unprecedented armament had been reinforced, thanks to that hated Costigan, with Roger's own every worthwhile idea, as well as with every weapon and defence known to that arch-Nevian, Narado. Unknowing and contemptuous, Roger launched his converter field, and instantly found himself fighting for his very life. For from Rodebush at the controls down, the men of the boys countered with wave after wave, and with salvo after salvo, of vibratory and material destruction. No thought of mercy for the men of the pirate ship could enter their minds. The outlaws had each been given a chance to surrender, and each had refused it. Refusing, they knew, as the Triplanetarians knew, and as all modern readers know, meant that they were staking their lives upon victory. For with modern armaments, few indeed are the men who live through the defeat in battle of a war vessel of space. Roger launched his field of red opacity, but it did not reach even the boys' screens. All space seemed to explode into violet splendour as Rodebush neutralised it, drove it back with his obliterating zone of force, but even that all-devouring zone could not touch Roger's peculiarly efficient screen. The outlaw vessel stood out unharmed. Ultraviolet, infrared, pure heat, infrasound, solid beams of high tension, high-frequency stuff in whose paths the most stubborn metals would be volatilised instantly, all iron-driven, every deadly and torturing vibration known was hurled against that screen, but it too was iron-driven, and it held. Even the awful force of the macro-beam was dissipated by it, reflected, hurled away on all sides in coruscating torrents of blinding, dazzling energy. Cooper, Adlington, Spencer and Dutton hurled against it their bombs and torpedoes, and still it held. But Roger's fiercest blasts and heaviest projectiles were equally impotent against the force shields of the supership. The adept, having no liking for a battle upon equal terms, then sought safety in flight, only to be brought to a crashing, stunning halt by a massive tractor beam. That must be that polycyclic screen that Conway reported on, Cleveland frowned in thought. I've been doing a lot of work on that, and I think I've calculated an opener for it, Fred, but I'll have to have number 10 projector and the whole output of number 10 power room. Can you let me play with that much juice for a while? All right, Blake. Tune her up to 55,000. There. Hold it. Now, you other fellows, listen. I'm going to try and drill a hole through that screen with a hollow, quasi-solid beam, like a diamond drill cutting out a core. You won't be able to shove anything into that hole from outside the beam, so you'll have to steer your cans out through the central orifice of number 10 projector. That'll be cold, since I'm going to use only the outer ring. I don't know how long I'll be able to hold the hole open, though, so shoot them along that as fast as you can. Ready? Here goes. He pressed a series of contacts. Far below, in number 10 converter room, massive switches drove home and the enormous mass of the vessel quivered under the terrific reaction of the newly calculated semi-material beam of energy that was hurled out, backed by the mightiest of all the mighty converters and generators of triplanetary super-dreadnought. 
That beam, a pipe-like hollow cylinder of intolerable energy, flashed out, and there was a rending, tearing crash as it struck Roger's hitherto impenetrable wall. Struck and clung, grinding, boring in, while from the raging inferno that marked the circle of contact of cylinder and shield, the pirate's screen radiated scintillating torrents of crackling, streaming sparks, lightning-like in length and in intensity. Deeper and deeper the gigantic drill was driven. It was through. Pierced Roger's polycyclic screen, exposed the bare metal of Roger's walls, and now, concentrated upon one point, flamed out in seemingly redoubled fury, Triplanetary's raging beams. In vain. For even as they could not penetrate the screen, neither could they penetrate the wall of Cleveland's drill, but rebounded from it in a cascading brilliance of thwarted lightning. Oh, what a dumbbell I am, groaned Cleveland. Why, oh, why didn't I have somebody rig up a secondary SX-7 beam on Ten's inner rings? Hop to it, will you, Blake, so that we'll have it in case they are able to stop the cans. But the pirates could not stop all of Triplanetary's projectiles, now hurrying along inside the pipe as fast as they could be driven. In fact, for a few minutes, Grey Roger, knowing that he faced the first real defeat of his long life, paid no attention to them at all, nor to any of his useless offensive weapons. He struggled only to break away from the savage grip of the boys' tractor rod. Futile. He could neither cut nor stretch that inexorably anchoring beam. Then he devoted his every resource to the closing of that unbelievable breach in his shield. Equally futile. His most desperate efforts resulted only in more frenzied displays of incandescence along the curved surface of contact of that penetrant cylinder. And through that terrific conduit came speeding package after package of destruction. Bombs, armour-piercing shells, gas shells of poisonous and corrosive fluids followed each other in close succession. The surviving scientists of the planetoid, expert gunners and raymen all, destroyed many of the projectiles, but it was not humanly possible to cope with them all, and the breach could not be forced shut against the all but irresistible force of Cleveland's opener. And with all his power, Roger could not shift his vessel's position in the grip of Triplanetary's tractors, sufficiently to bring a projector to bear upon the supership along the now unprotected axis of that narrow but deadly tube. Thus it was that the end came soon. A warhead touched steel plating, and there ensued a space-racking explosion of atomic iron. Gaping wide, helpless, with all defences down, other torpedoes entered the stricken hull and completed its destruction even before they could be recalled. Atomic bombs literally volatilised most of the pirate vessel. Vials of pure corrosion began to dissolve the solid fragments of her substance into dripping corruption. Reeking gases filled every cranny of space as what was left of Roger's battlecruiser began the long plunge to the ground. The supership followed the wreckage down, and Rodebush sent out an exploring spy ray. Resistance was such that it was necessary to employ corrosive, and ship and contents were completely disintegrated, he dictated a little later into his vessel's log. While there were, of course, no remains recognisable as human, it is certain that Roger and his last eleven men died, since it is clear that the circumstances and conditions were such that no life could possibly have survived.
It is true that the form of flesh which had been known as Roger was destroyed. The solids and liquids of its substance were resolved into their component molecules or atoms. That which had energised that form of flesh, however, could not be harmed by any physical force, however applied. Therefore, that which made Roger what he was, the essence which was Garlane of Adore, was actually back upon his native planet, even before Rodebush completed his study of what was left of the pirate's vessel. The innermost circle met, and for a space of time which would have been very long indeed for any earthly mind, those monstrous beings considered as one multiply intelligence exposed every phase and facet of the truth. At the end, they knew the Arisians as well as the Arisians knew them. The All-Highest then called a meeting of all the minds of Adore. Hence it is clear that these Arisians, while possessing minds of tremendous latent capability, are basically soft, and therefore inefficient, he concluded. Not weak, mind you, but scrupulous and unrealistic, and it is by taking advantage of these characteristics that we shall ultimately triumph. A few details, all highest, if your ultimate supremacy would deign, a lesser Adorian requested. Some of us have not been able to perceive at all clearly the optimum lines of action. While detailed plans of campaign have not yet been worked out, there will be several main lines of attack. A purely military undertaking will of course be one, but it will not be the most important. Political action, by means of subversive elements and obstructive minorities, will prove much more useful. More productive of all, however, will be the operations of relatively small but highly organised groups, whose functions will be to negate, to tear down and destroy every bulwark of what the weak and spineless adherents of civilization consider the finest things in life. Love, Truth, honour, loyalty, purity, altruism, decency, and so on. Ah, love. Extremely interesting. Supremacy, this thing they call sex, Garlane offered. What a silly, what a meaningless thing it is. I have studied it intensively, but am not yet fully enough informed to submit a complete and conclusive report. I do know, however, that we can and will use it. In our hands, vice will become a potent weapon indeed. Vice, drugs, greed, gambling, extortion, blackmail, lust, abduction, assassination. Exactly. There will be room and need for the fullest powers of every Adorian. Let me caution you all, however, that little or none of this work is to be done by any of us in person. We must work through echelon upon echelon of higher and lower executive and supervisors, if we are to control efficiently the activities of the thousands of billions of operators, which we must and will have to work. Each echelon of control will be vastly greater in number than the one immediately above it, but correspondingly lower in the individual power of its component personnel. The sphere of activity of each supervisor, however great or small, will be clearly and sharply defined. Rank from the operators at planetary population levels up to and including the Adorian Directorate, will be a linear function of ability. Absolute authority will be delegated. Full responsibility will be assumed. Those who succeed will receive advancement and satisfaction of desire. Those who fail will die. Since the personnel of the lower echelons will be of small value and easy of replacement, it is of little moment whether or not they become involved in reverses affecting the still lower echelons whose activities they direct. The echelon immediately below us of Edor, however, 
and incidentally, it is my thought that the plurans will best serve as our immediate underlings, must never under any condition allow any hint of its real business to become known either to any member of any lower echelon or to any adherent of civilization. The point is vital. Everyone here must realise that only in that way can our own safety remain assured, and must take pains to see to it that any violator of this rule is put instantly to death. Those of you who are engineers will design ever more powerful mechanisms to use against the Arisians. Psychologists will devise and put into practice new methods and technologies, both to use against the able minds of the Arisians and to control the activities of mentally weaker entities. Each Adorian, whatever his field or ability, will be given the task he is best fitted to perform. That is all. And upon Orissia too, while there was no surprise, a general conference was held. While some of the young watchmen may have been glad that the open conflict for which they had been preparing so long was now about to break, Orissia as a whole was neither glad nor sorry. In the great scheme of things, which was the cosmic all, this whole affair was an infinitesimal incident. It had been foreseen. It had come. Each Arician would do the fullest of his ability, that which the very fact of his being an Arician would compel him to do. It would pass. In effect, then, our situation has not really changed, Euconidor stated, rather than asked, after the elders had again spread their visualisation for public inspection and discussion. This killing, it seems, must go on. This stumbling, falling and rising, this blind groping, this futility, this frustration, this welter of crime, disaster and bloodshed. Why? It seems to me that it would be much better, cleaner, simpler, faster, more efficient, and involving infinitely less bloodshed and suffering, for us to take now a direct and active part, as the Odorians have done and will continue to do. Cleaner youth, yes, and simpler. Easier, less bloody. It would not, however, be better, or even good, because no end point would ever be attained. Young civilizations advance only by overcoming obstacles. Each obstacle surmounted, each step of progress made, carries its suffering as well as its reward. We could negate the efforts of any echelon below the Adorians themselves, it is true. We could so protect and shield each one of our protégé races so that not a war would be waged and not a law would be broken. But to what end? Further contemplation will show you, immature thinkers, that in such a case... Not one of our races would develop into what the presence of the Adorians has made it necessary for them to become. From this it follows that we would never be able to overcome Ador, nor would our conflict with that race remain indefinitely at stalemate. Given sufficient time during which to work against us, they will be able to win. However, if every Arician follows his line of action as it is laid out in this visualisation, all will be well. Are there any more questions? None. The blanks which you may have left can be filled in by a mind of very moderate power. Look here, Fred, Cleveland called attention to the plate, upon which was pictured a horde of the peculiar inhabitants of that ghastly planet, wreaking their frenzied electrical wrath upon everything within the circle bed of native life by Roger's destructive beams. I was just going to suggest that we clean up the planetoid that Roger started to build, but I see that the local boys and girls are attending to it. Just as well, perhaps. I would like to stay and study these people a little while, but we must get back onto the trail of the Nevians. And the boys leaped away into space, toward the line of the flight of the amphibians.
They reached that line, and along it they travelled at full normal blast. As they travelled, their detecting receivers and amplifiers were reaching out with their utmost power, ultra-instruments capable of rendering audible any signal originating within many light-years of them, upon any possible communications band. And constantly at least two men, with every sense concentrated in their ears, were listening to those instruments. Listening, straining to distinguish in the deafening roar of background noise from the overdriven tubes any sign of voice or of signal. Listening, while millions upon millions of miles beyond even the prodigious reach of those ultra-instruments, three human beings were even then sending out into empty space an almost hopeless appeal for the help so desperately needed. Chapter 11 The Specimens Escape Knowing well that conversation with its fellows is one of the greatest needs of any intelligent being, the Nevians had permitted the terrestrial specimens to retain possession of their ultra-beam communicators. Thus it was that Costigan had been able to keep in touch with his sweetheart and with Bradley. He learned that each had been placed upon exhibition in a different Nevian city, that the three had been separated in response to an insistent popular demand for such a distribution of the peculiar but highly interesting creatures from a distant solar system. They had not been harmed. In fact, each was visited daily by a specialist who made sure that his charge was being kept in the pink of condition. As soon as he became aware of this condition of things, Costigan became morose. He sat still, drooped and pined away visibly. He refused to eat, and of the worried specialist he demanded liberty. Then, failing in that as he knew he would fail, he demanded something to do. They pointed out to him, reasonably enough, that in such a civilization as theirs there was nothing he could do. They assured him that they would do anything they could to alleviate his mental suffering, but that since he was a museum piece he must see himself that he must be kept on display for a short time. Wouldn't he please behave himself and eat as a reasoning being should? Costigan sulked a little longer, then wavered. Finally he agreed to compromise. He would eat and exercise if they would fit up a laboratory in his apartment so that he could continue the studies he had begun on his own native planet. To this they agreed, and thus it came about that one day the following conversation was held. Cleo, Bradley, I've got something to tell you this time. Haven't said anything before for fear things might not work out, but they did. I went on a hunger strike and made them give me a complete laboratory. As a chemist, I'm a damn good electrician, but luckily, with the seawater they've got here, it's a very simple thing to make. Hold on, snapped Bradley. Somebody may be listening in on us. They aren't. They can't without my knowing it, and I'll cut off the second anybody tries to synchronise with my beam. To resume, making V2 is a very simple process, and I've got everything around here that's hollow clear full of it. How come they let you? asked Cleo. Oh, they don't know what I'm doing. They watched me for a few days, and all I did was make up and bottle the weirdest messes imaginable. Then I finally managed to separate oxygen and nitrogen, and after trying hard all of one day, and when they saw that I didn't know anything about either one of them or what to do with them after I had them, they gave me up in disgust as a plain dumb ape, and haven't paid any attention to me since. So, I've got me plenty of kilograms of liquid V2, all ready to touch off. I'm getting out of here in about three minutes and a half. 
and I'm coming after you folks in a new iron-powered space speedster that they don't know I know anything about. They've just given it its final tests, and it's the slickest thing you ever saw. But, Conway, you can't possibly rescue me, Cleo's voice broke. Why, there are thousands of them all around here. If you can get away, dear, go, but don't... I said I was coming after you, and if I get away, I'll be there. A good whiff of this stuff will lay out a thousand of them just as easily as it will one. Here's the idea. I've made a gas mask for myself, since I'll be in it where it's thick, but you two won't need any. It's soluble enough in water that three or four thicknesses of wet cloth over your noses will be enough. I'll tell you when to wet down. We're going to break away or go out trying. There aren't enough amphibians between here and Andromeda to keep us humans cooped up like menagerie animals forever. But here comes my specialist with the keys to the city. Time for the overture to start. See you later. The Nevian physician directed his key tube upon the transparent wall of the chamber and an opening appeared. An opening which vanished as soon as he had stepped through it. Costigan kicked a valve open and from various innocent tubes there belched forth into the water of the central lagoon and into the air over it a flood of deadly vapour. As the Nevian turned away from the prisoner, there was an almost inaudible hiss, and a tiny jet of the frightful outlawed stuff struck his open gills just below his huge conical head. He tensed momentarily, twitched convulsively just once, and fell motionless to the floor. And outside, the streams of avidly soluble liquefied gas rushed out into the air and into water. It spread, dissolved and diffused with the extreme mobility which is one of its characteristics. And as it diffused and was borne outward, the Nevians in their massed hundreds died. Died not knowing what killed them. Not knowing even that they died. Costigan bitterly resentful of the inhuman treatment accorded the three, and fiercely anxious for the success of his plan of escape, held his breath and, grimly alert, watched the amphibians die. When he could see no more motion anywhere, he donned his gas mask, strapped on his back a large canister of the poison, his capacious pockets were already full of smaller containers, and two savagely exultant sentences escaped him. I am a poor, ignorant specimen of ape that can be let play with apparatus, am I? He rasped as he picked up the key tube of the specialist and opened the door of the prison. They'll learn now that it ain't safe to judge by the looks of a flea how far he can jump. He stepped out through the opening into the water, and burdened as he was, made shift to swim up the nearest ramp. Up it he went toward a main corridor, but ahead of him there was wafted a breath of dread V2, and where that breath went, went also unconsciousness, an unconsciousness which would deepen gradually into permanent oblivion, save for the prompt intervention of one who possessed not only the necessary antidote, but the equally important knowledge of exactly how to use it. Upon the floor of that corridor were strewn Nevians, who had dropped in their tracks. Past or over their bodies, Costigan strode, pausing only to direct a jet of lethal vapour into whatever branching corridor or open door caught his eye. He was going to the intake of the city's ventilation plant, and no unmasked creature dependent for life upon oxygen could bar his path. He reached the intake, tore the canister from his back, and released its full vast volume of horrid contents into the primary airstream of the entire city. And all throughout that doomed city, Nevians dropped, quietly and without a struggle, unknowing. 
Busy executives dropped upon their cushioned, flat-topped desks. Hurrying travellers and messengers dropped upon the floors of the corridors or relaxed in the noxious waters of the ways. Lookouts and observers dropped before their flashing screens. Central operators of communications dropped under the winking lights of their panels. Observers and centrals in the outlying sections of the city wondered briefly at the unwanted universal motionlessness and stagnation. Then the racing taint in water and in air reached them too, and they ceased wondering forever. Then, through those quiet halls, Costigan stalked to a certain storage room, where, with all due precaution, he donned his own suit of triplanetary armour. Making an ungainly bundle of the other Salarian equipment stored there, he dragged it along behind him as he clanked back towards his prison, until he neared the dock at which was moored the Nevian space speedster, which he was determined to take. Here, he knew, was the first of many critical points. The crew of the vessel was aboard, and with its independent air supply, unharmed. They had weapons, were undoubtedly alarmed, and were very probably highly suspicious. They too had ultra-beams and might see him, but his very closeness to them would tend to protect him from ultra-beam observation. Therefore, he crouched tensely behind a buttress, staring through his spy-ray goggles, waiting for a moment when none of the Nevians would be near the entrance, but grimly resolved to act instantly should he feel any touch of a spying ultra-beam. Here's where the pinch comes, he growled to himself. I know the combinations, but if they're suspicious enough and act quickly enough, they can seal the door on me before I can get it open, and then rub me out like a blot. But, ah, the moment had arrived, before the touch of any revealing ray. He trained the key tube, the entrance opened, and through that opening, in the instant of its appearance, there shot a brittle bulb of glass, whose breaking meant death. It crashed into fragments against a metallic wall, and Costigan, entering the vessel, consigned its erstwhile crew one by one to the already crowded waters of the lagoon. He then leaped to the controls and drove the captured speedster through the air to plunge it down upon the surface of the lagoon beside the door of the isolated structure which had for so long been his prison. Carefully, he transferred to the vessel the motley assortment of containers of V2, and after a quick check-up to make sure he had overlooked nothing, he shot his craft straight up into the air. Then only did he close his ultrawave circuits and speak. Cleo, Bradley, I got away clean, without a bit of trouble. Now I'm coming after you, Cleo. Oh, it's wonderful that you got away, Conway, the girl exclaimed, but hadn't you better get Captain Bradley first? Then, if anything should happen, he would be of some use, while I... I'll knock him into an outside loop if he does, the captain snorted, and Costigan went on. You won't need to. You come first, Cleo, of course, but you're too far away for me to see you with my spy, and I don't want to use the high-powered beam of this boat for fear of detection, so you better keep on talking so that I can trace you. Any excitement around there yet? he asked her then. Nothing unusual that I can see, she replied. Why, should there be some? I hope not, but when I made my getaway I couldn't kill them all, of course, and I thought that maybe they might connect things up with my jailbreak and tell the other cities to take steps about you two, but I guess they're pretty well disorganised back there yet, since they can't know who hit them, or what with, or why. I must have got pretty much anybody that wasn't sealed up somewhere, and it doesn't stand to reason that those who are left can check up very closely for a while yet, but they're nobody's fools, they'll certainly get conscious when I snatch you, maybe before... There, 
I see your city, I think. What are you going to do? Same as I did back there, if I can. Poison their primary air and all the water I can reach. Oh, Conway, her voice rose. They, they must know. They're all getting out of the water and are rushing inside the buildings as fast as they possibly can. I see they are, grimly. I'm right over you now, way up. Been locating their primary intake. They've got a dozen ships around it and have guards posted all along the corridors leading to it. And those guards are wearing masks. They're clever birds, all right, these amphibians. They know what they got back there and how they got it. That changes things. If we use gas here, we won't stand a chance in the world of getting old Bradley. Uh, Stand by to jump when I open that door. Hurry, they're coming out here after me. Sure they are. Costigan had already seen the two Nevians swimming out towards Cleo's cage and had hurled his vessel downward in a screaming power dive. You're too valuable a specimen for them to let you be gassed, but if they can get there before I do, they're travelling fools. He miscalculated slightly, so that instead of coming to a halt at the surface of the liquid medium, the speedster struck with a crash that hurled solid masses of water for hundreds of yards. But no ordinary crash could harm that vessel's structure. Her gravity controls were not overloaded, and she shot back to the surface. Gallant ship and reckless pilot alike unharmed. Costigan trained his tube key upon the doorway of Cleo's cell, then tossed it aside. Different combinations over here, he barked. Got to cut you out. Lie down in that far corner. His hands flashed over the panel, and as Cleo fell prone without hesitation or question, a heavy beam literally blasted away a large portion of the roof of the structure. The speedster shot into the air and dropped down until she rested upon the tops of opposite walls, walls still glowing, semi-molten. The girl piled a stool upon the table and stood upon it, reaching upward and seized the mailed hands extended downward toward her. Costigan heaved her up into the vessel with a powerful jerk, slammed the door shut, leaped to the controls, and the speedster darted away. Your armour's in that bundle there. Better put it on and check your Lewistons and pistols. No telling what kind of jams we'll get into, he snapped without turning. Bradley, start talking. All right, I've got your line. Uh, Better get your wet rags ready and get organised generally. Every second will count by the time we get there. We're coming so fast that our outer plating's white hot, but it may not be fast enough at that. It isn't fast enough, quite, Bradley announced calmly. They're coming out after me now. Don't fight them, and it probably won't paralyse you. Keep on talking so that I can find out where they take you. No good, Costigan. The voice of the old spacehound did not reveal a sign of emotion as he made his dread announcement. They have it all figured out. They're not taking any chances at all. They're going to paral... His voice broke off in the middle of the word. With a bitter imprecation, Costigan flashed on the powerful ultra-beam projector of the speedster and focused the plate upon Bradley's prison, careless now of detection since the Nevians were already warned. Upon that plate, he watched the Nevians carry the helpless body of the captain onto a small boat and continued to watch as they bore it into one of the largest buildings of the city. Up a series of ramps they took the still form, placing it finally upon a soft couch in an enormous and heavily guarded central hall. Costigan turned to his companion, and even through the helmet she could plainly see the white agony of his expression. He moistened his lips and tried twice to speak, tried and failed, but he made no move either to cut off the power or change their direction. Of course, she approved steadily. We are going through. I I know that you want to run with me, but if you actually did it, I would never want to see you or hear of you again, and you would hate me forever. Hardly that. 
The anguish did not leave his eyes, and his voice was hoarse and trained, but his hands did not vary the course of the speedster by so much as a hair's breadth. You're the finest little fellow that ever waved a plume, and I would love you no matter what happened. I'd trade my immortal soul to the devil if it would get you out of this mess, but we're both in it up to our necks, and we can't back out now. If they kill him, we beat it. He and I both knew that it was on the chance of that happening that I took you first, but as long as all three of us are alive, it's all three or none. Of course, she said again, as steadily, thrilled this time to the depths of her being by him simply voicing his code, a man of such fibre that neither love of life nor his infinitely greater love for her could make him lower its high standard. We are going through. We are three human beings fighting a world full of monsters. I am simply one of us three. I will steer your ship, fire your projectors or throw your bombs. What can I do best? Throw bombs, he directed briefly. He knew what must be done, where they were to have even the slightest chance of winning clear. I'm going to blast a hole down into that auditorium, and when I do, you stand by that port and start dropping bottles of perfume. Throw a couple of big ones right down the shaft I make, and the rest of them most anywhere, after I cut the wall open. They'll do good wherever they hit, land or water. But Captain Bradley, he'll be gassed too. Her eyes were troubled. Can't be helped. I've got the antidote, and it'll work any time under an hour. That'll be lots of time. If we aren't gone in less than ten minutes, we'll be staying here. They're bringing in platoons of militia in full armour, and if we don't beat those boys to it, we're in for plenty of grief. All right, start throwing. The speedster had come to a halt directly over the imposing edifice within which Bradley was incarcerated, and a mighty beam had flared downward, digging a fiery well through floor after floor of stubborn metal. The ceiling of the amphitheatre was pierced, the beam expired. Down into that assembly hall there dropped two canisters of V2 to crash and to fill its atmosphere with imperceptible death. Then the beam flashed on again, this time at maximum power, and with it Costigan burned away half of the entire building. Burned it away until room above room gaped open, shelf-like to outer atmosphere, the great hall now resembling an oversized pigeonhole surrounded by smaller ones. Into that largest pigeonhole, the speedster darted, and cushioned decks and benches crashed down, crushed flat under its enormous weight as it came to rest upon the floor. Every available guard had been thrown into that room, regardless of customary occupation or of equipment. Most of them had been ordinary watchmen, not even wearing masks, and all such were already down. Many, however, were masked, and a few were dressed in full armour, but no portable armour could mount defences of sufficient power to withstand the awful force of the speedster's weapons, and one flashing swing of a projector swept the hall almost clear of life. Can't shoot very close to Bradley with this big beam, but I'll mop up on the rest of them by hand. Stay here and cover me, Cleo, Costigan ordered, and went to open the port. I can't, I won't, Cleo replied instantly. I don't know the controls well enough. I'd kill you or Captain Bradley, sure, but I can shoot. And I'm going to. And she leaped out close upon his heels. Thus, flaming Lewiston in one hand and barking automatic in the other, the two mailed figures advanced towards Bradley, now doubly helpless, paralysed by his enemies and gassed by his friends. For a time the Nevians melted away before them, but as they approached more nearly the couch upon which the captain was, they encountered six figures encased in armour fully as capable as their own. The beams of the Lewistons rebounded from that armour in futile pyrotechnics. The bullets of the automatics spattered and exploded impotently against them. 
and behind that single line of armoured guards were massed perhaps twenty unarmoured but masked soldiers, and scuttling up the ramps leading into the hall were coming the platoons of heavily armoured figures which Costigan had previously seen. Decision instantly made, Costigan ran back toward the speedster, but he was not deserting his companions. Keep up the good work, he instructed the girl as he ran. I'll pick these jaspers off with a pencil and then stand off the bunch that's coming while you rub out the rest of that crew there and drag Bradley back here. Back at the control panel, he trained a narrow but intensely dense beam, quasi-solid lightning, and one by one, the six armoured figures fell. Then, knowing that Cleo could handle the remaining opposition, he devoted his attention to the reinforcements so rapidly approaching from the sides. Again and again the heavy beam lashed out, now upon this side, now upon that, and in its flaming path Nevians disappeared. And not only Nevians. In the incredible energy of that beam's blast floor, walls, ramps and every material thing vanished in clouds of thick and brilliant vapour. The room temporarily cleared of foes. He sprang again to Cleo's assistance, but her task was nearly done. She had rubbed out all opposition, and tugging lustily at Bradley's feet, had already dragged him almost to the side of the speedster. Add a girl, Cleo, cheered Costigan, as he picked up the burly captain and tossed him through the doorway. In with you, and we'll go places. But getting the speedster out of the now completely ruined hall proved to be much more of a task than driving it in had been, for scarcely had Costigan closed his locks than a section of the building collapsed behind them, cutting off their retreat. Nevian submarines and airships were beginning to arrive upon the scene and were beaming the building viciously in an attempt to entrap or crush the foreigners in its ruins. Costigan managed finally to blast his way out, but the Nevians had had time to assemble in force, and he was met by a concentrated storm of beams and of metal from every inimical weapon within range. But not for nothing had Conway Costigan selected for his dash for liberty the craft which, save only for the two immense interstellar cruisers, was the most powerful vessel ever built on Red Nevia. And not for nothing had he studied minutely and to the last, least detail every item of its controls and of its armament during wearily long days and nights of solitary imprisonment. He had studied it under test, in action and at rest, studied it until he knew thoroughly its every possibility, and what a ship it was. The atomic-powered generators of his shielding screens handled with ease the terrific load of the Nevian's assault. His polycyclic screens were proof against any material projectile, and the machines supplying his offensive weapons with power were more than equal to their tasks. And in the instant of their failure, the enemy vessel was blown away into nothingness. No unprotected metal, however resistant, could exist for a moment in the pathway of those iron-driven tornadoes of pure energy. Ship after ship of the Nevians plunged towards the speedster in desperately suicidal attempts to ram her down, but each met the same flaming fate before it could reach its target. Then, from the grouped submarines far below, there reached up red rods of force which seized the spaceship and began relentlessly to draw her down. What are they doing that for, Conway? They can't fight us. They don't want to fight us. They want to hold us. But I know what to do about that, too and the powerful tractor rods snapped as a plane of pure force knifed through them. Upward now, at the highest permissible velocity, the speedster leaped, and past the few ships remaining above her she dodged, nothing now between her and the freedom of boundless space. "'You did it, Conway! You did it!' Cleo exulted. "'Oh, Conway, you're just simply wonderful!' "'I haven't done it yet,' Costigan cautioned her. "'The worst is yet to come. Narado.' 
He's why they wanted to hold us back, and why I was in such a hurry to get away. That boat of his is bad medicine, and we want to put plenty of kilometres behind us before he gets started. But do you think he will chase us? Think so. I know so. The mere fact that we are rare specimens, and that he told us we were going to stay there all the rest of our lives, would make him chase us clear to Lundmark's nebula. Besides that, we stepped on their toes pretty heavily before we left. We know altogether too much now to be let get back to tell us, and finally, they'd all die of acute enlargement of the spleen if we get away with this prize ship of theirs. I hope to tell you they'll chase us. He fell silent, devoting his whole attention to his piloting, driving his ship onward at such velocity that its outer plating held steadily at the highest point of temperature compatible with safety. Soon they were out in open space, hurtling towards the sun under the drive of every possible watt of power, and Costigan took off his armour and turned towards the helpless body of the captain. He looks so... so dead, Conway. Are you really sure that you can bring him to? Absolutely. Lots of time yet. Just three simple squirts in the right place will do the trick. He took from a locked compartment of his armour a small steel box, which housed a surgeon's hypodermic and three vials. One, two, three. He injected small but precisely measured amounts of the fluids into the three vital localities, then placed the inert form upon a deeply cushioned couch. There. That'll take care of the gas in five or six hours. The paralysis will wear off long before that, so he'll be all right when he wakes up. And we're going away from here with everything we can put out. I've done everything I know how to do for the present. Then, then only did Costigan turn and look down directly into Cleo's eyes. Wide, eloquent blue eyes that gazed back up into his, tender and unafraid. Eyes freighted with the oldest message of woman to chosen man. His hard young face softened wonderfully as he stared at her. There were two quick steps, and they were in each other's arms. Lips upon eager lips, blue eyes to grey. Motionless, they stood clasped in ecstasy, thinking nothing of the dreadful past, nothing of the fearful future, conscious only of the glorious, wonderful present. Cleo, mine, darling, how I love you. Costigan's deep voice was husky with emotion. I haven't kissed you for seven thousand years. I, I don't rate you by a million steps, but if I can just get you out of this mess, I swear, by all the gods of interplanetary space... You needn't, lover, rate me. Good heavens, Conway. It's just the other way. Stop it, he commanded in her ear. I'm still dizzy at the idea of you loving me at all, to say nothing of loving me this way. But you do... And that's all I ask, here or hereafter. Their mutual embrace tightened, and her low voice thrilled brokenly as she went on. Conway, dearest, I can't say a thing, but you know. Oh, Conway. After a time, Cleo drew a long and tremulous but supremely happy breath, as the realities of their predicament once more obtruded themselves upon her consciousness. She released herself gently from Costigan's arms. Do you really think that there's a chance of us getting back to the Earth so that we can be together, always? A chance, yes. A probability, no, he replied unequivocally. It depends on two things. First, how much of a start we got in Narado. His ship is the biggest and fastest thing I ever saw, and if he strips her down and drives her, which he will, he'll catch us long before we can make it to tell us. 
On the other hand, I gave Rhoda Bush a lot of data, and if he and Lyman Cleveland can add it to their own stuff and get that supership of ours rebuilt in time, they'll be out here on the prowl, and they'll have whatever it takes to give Narado plenty of argument. No use worrying about it anyway. We don't know anything until we can detect one or the other of them, and then will be the time to do something about it. If Narado catches us, will you... She paused. Rub you out? I will not. Even if he does catch us and takes us back to Nevia, I won't. There's lots more coming onto the clock. Narado won't hurt either of us badly enough to leave scars, either physical, mental or moral. I'd kill you in a second if it were Roger. He's mean, he's thoroughly bad, but Narado's a good enough old scout in his way. He's big and he's clean, you know. I could really like that fish if I could meet him on terms of equality sometime. I couldn't, she declared vigorously. He's crawly and scaly and snaky and he smells so... so... So rank and fishy? Costigan laughed deeply. Details, mere details. I've seen people who looked like money in the bank and who smelled like a bouquet of violets that you couldn't trust half the length of Narado's neck. But look what he did to us, she protested. And they weren't trying to recapture us back there. They were trying to kill us. That was perfectly all right, what he did and what they did. What else could they have done? And while you're looking, look at what we did to them. Plenty, I'd say. But we all had to do it, and neither side will blame the other for doing it. He's a square shooter, I tell you. Well, maybe, but I don't like him a bit. Let's not talk about him any more. Let's talk about us. Remember what you said once, when you advised me to let you lay or whatever it was? I do remember, and I still think it's a sound idea, even though I'm too far gone now to let you put it into effect, he assured her half-seriously. He kissed her tenderly and reverently, then studied her carefully. But you look as though you'd been on a Martian picnic. When did you eat last? I don't remember exactly. This morning, I think. Or maybe last night, or yesterday morning. I thought so. Bradley and I can eat anything that's chewable and drink anything that will pour, but you can't. I'll scout around and see if I can't fix up something that you'll be able to eat. He rummaged through the storerooms, emerging with sundry supplies from which he prepared a highly satisfactory meal. Think you can sleep now, sweetheart? After supper, once more within the circle of Costigan's arms, Cleo nodded her head against his shoulder. Of course I can, dear. Now that you are with me, out here alone, I'm not a bit afraid any more. You will get us back to Earth some way, some time. I just know that you will. Good night, Conway. Good night, Cleo, he whispered, and went back to Bradley's side. In due time, the captain recovered consciousness and slept. Then for days, the speedster flashed on towards our distant solar system, days during which her wide-flung detector screens remained cold. I don't know whether I'm afraid they'll hit something or afraid they won't, Costigan remarked more than once. But finally, those tenuous sentinels did in fact encounter an interfering vibration. Along the detector line, a visi-beam sped, and Costigan's face hardened as he saw the unmistakable outline of Narado's interstellar cruiser far behind them. Well, a stern chase always was a long one, Costigan said firmly. He can't catch us for plenty of days yet. Now what? 
for the alarms of the detectors had broken out anew, there was still another point of interference to be investigated. Costigan traced it, and there, almost dead ahead of them, between them and their son, nearing them at the incomprehensible rate of the sum of the two vessels' velocities, came another cruiser of the Nevians. Must be the sister ship, coming back from our system with a load of iron, Costigan deduced. Heavily loaded as she is, we may be able to dodge her, and she's coming so fast that if we can stay out of her range, we'll be all right. You won't be able to stop for probably three or four days, but if our super ship is anywhere in these parts, now's the time for her to rally round. He gave the speedster all the side thrust she would take, then putting every available communicator tube behind a tight beam, he aimed it at Sol and began sending out a long-continued call to his fellows at the Triplanetary Service. Nearer and nearer the Nevian flashed, trying with all her power to intercept the speeder, but it soon became evident that, heavy laden though she was, she could make enough sideway to bring her within range at the time of meeting. Of course, they've got partial neutralisation of inertia the same as we have, Costigan cogitated, and by the way he's coming, I'd say that he had orders to blow us out of the ether. He knows as well as we do that he can't capture us alive at anything like the relative velocities we've got now. I can't give her any more side thrust without overloading the gravity control, so overloaded they've got to be. Strap down, you two, because they may go out entirely. Do you think that you can pull away from them, Conway? Cleo was staring in horrified fascination into the plate, watching the pictured vessel increase in size moment by moment. I don't know whether I can or not, but I'm going to try. Just in case we don't, though, I'm going to keep on yelling for help. In solid... All right, boat. Do your stuff. Chapter 12. Giants Meet. Check your blast, Fred. I think that I hear something trying to come through, Cleveland called out sharply. For days, the boys had torn through the illimitable reaches of empty space, and now the long vigil of the keen-eared listeners was to be ended. Rodebush cut off his power, and through the crackling war of tube noise, an almost inaudible voice made itself heard. All the help you can give us, Sams, Cleveland, Roadbush. Anybody of Triplanetary who can hear me, listen. This is Costigan, with Miss Marsden and Captain Bradley, heading for where we think the sun is, from right ascension about six hours, uh, declination about plus fourteen degrees, distance unknown but probably a good many light years. Trace my call. One Nevian ship is overhauling us slowly, another is coming towards us from the sun. We may or may not be able to dodge it, but we need all the help you can give us. Sams, Rodebush, Cleveland, anybody of Triplanetary. Endlessly, the faint, faint voice went on, but Rodebush and Cleveland were no longer listening. Sensitive ultra-loops had been swung, and along the indicated line shot Triplanetary's supership, at a velocity which she had never before even approached, the utterly incomprehensible, almost incalculable velocity obtained by inertialess matter driven through an almost perfect vacuum by the boys' maximum projector blasts, a blast which would lift her stupendous normal tonnage against a gravity five times that of Earth. At the full, frightful measure of that velocity, the supership literally annihilated distance, while ahead of her, the furiously driven spy ray beam fanned out in quest of the three Triplantarians who were calling for help. "'Got any idea how fast we're going?' Rodebush demanded, glancing up for an instant from the observation plate. "'We should be able to see him, since we could hear him, and our range is certainly as great as anything he can have.' 
No. Can't figure velocity without any reliable data on how many atoms of matter exist per cubic metre out here. Cleveland was staring at the calculator. It's constant, of course, at the value at which the friction of the medium is equal to our thrust. Incidentally, we can't hold it too long. We're running a temperature, which shows that we're stepping along faster than anybody ever computed before. Also, it points out the necessity for something that none of us ever anticipated needing in an open space drive. Refrigerators, or radiating wall shields, or repellers, or or something of the sort. But to get back to our velocity, taking Throckmorton's estimates, it figures somewhere near the order of magnitude of 10 to the 27th. Fast enough, anyway, that you'd better bend an eye on that plate. Even after you see them, you won't know where they really are, because we don't know any of the velocities involved. Our own, theirs, or that of the beam. And we may be right on top of them. Or if we happen to be outrunning the beam, we won't see them at all. That makes it nice piloting. How are you going to handle things when we get there? Lock to them and take them aboard, if we're in time. If not, if they are fighting already, there they are. The picture of the speedster's control room flashed upon the speaker. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Cleve. Welcome to our city. Where are you? We don't know, Cleveland snapped back, and we don't know where you are either. Can't figure anything without data. I see you're still breathing air. Where are the Nevians? How much time have we got yet? Not enough, I'm afraid. By the looks of things, they'll be within range of us in a couple of hours, and you haven't even touched our detector screen yet. A couple of hours! In his relief, Cleveland shouted the words, That's time to burn. We can be just about out of the galaxy, and that... He broke off at a yell from Rodebush. Broadcast, Spud. Broadcast, the physicist had cried as Costigan's image had disappeared utterly from his plate. He cut off the boys' power, stopping her instantaneously in mid-space, but the connection had been broken. Costigan could not possibly have heard the orders to change his beam signal to a broadcast so that they could pick it up, nor would it have done any good if he had heard and had obeyed. So immeasurably great had been their velocity that they had flashed past the speedster and were now unknown thousands or millions of miles beyond the fugitives they had come so far to help, far beyond the range of any possible broadcast. But Cleveland understood instantly what had happened. He now had a little data upon which to work, and his hands flew over the keys of the calculator. Backblast at maximum 17 seconds, he directed crisply. Not exact, of course, but that will put us close enough so that we can find them with our detectors. For the calculated 17 seconds, the supership retraced her path at the same awful speed with which he had come so far. The blast expired, and there, plainly outlined upon their observation plates, was the Nevian speedster. As a computer, you're good, Cleve, Rodebush applauded. So close that we can't use the neutralizers to catch him. If we use one dyne of drive, we'll overshoot a million kilometers before I could snap the switch. And yet he's so far away and going so fast that if we keep our inertia on, it'll take all day at full blast to overtake. No, wait a minute, we could never catch him. Cleveland was puzzled. What to do? Shunt in a potentiometer? No, we don't need it. Rodebush turned to the transmitter. Costigan, we're going to take hold of you with a very light tractor, a tracer really, and whatever you do, don't cut it or we can't reach you in time. It may look like a collision, but it won't be. We'll just touch you without even a jar. A tractor? Inertialess, Cleveland wondered. Sure, why not? Rodebush set up the beam at its absolute minimum of power and threw in the switch. 
While hundreds of thousands of miles separated the two vessels and the attractor was exerting the least effort of which it was capable, yet the supership leaped towards the smaller craft at a pace which covered the intervening distance in almost no time at all. So rapidly were the objectives enlarging upon the plates that the automatic focusing devices could scarcely function rapidly enough to keep them in place. Cleveland flinched involuntarily and seized his armrests in a spasmodic clutch as he watched this, the first inertialist space approach. And even Rodebush, who knew better than anyone else what to expect, held his breath and swallowed hard at the unbelievable rate at which the two vessels were rushing together. And if these two, who had rebuilt the supership, could hardly control themselves, what of the three in the speedster, who knew nothing whatever of the Wondercraft's potentialities? Cleo staring into the plate with Costigan, uttering one piercing shriek as she sank her fingers into his shoulder. Bradley swore a mighty deep space oath and braced himself against certain annihilation. Costigan stared for an instant, unable to believe his eyes, then, in spite of the warning, his hand darted towards the studs which would cut the beam. Too late. Before his flying fingers could reach the buttons, the boys was upon them, had struck the speedster in direct central impact, moving at the full measure of her unthinkable velocity, though the supership was, in the instant of impact, yet the most delicate recording instruments of the speedster could not detect the slightest shock as the enormous globe struck the comparatively tiny torpedo and clung to it, accommodating instantaneously and effortlessly her own terrific pace to that of the smaller and infinitely slower craft. Cleo sobbed in relief, and Costigan, one arm around her, sighed hugely. Hey, you space lugs. Glad to see you and all that, but you might as well kill a man outright to scare him to death. So that's the super ship, huh? Some ship. Aya Murph. Aya Spud, came from the speaker. Murph? Spud? How come? Cleo, practically recovered now, glanced up questioningly. It was plain that she did not quite know whether or not to like the nicknames, which the rescuers were calling her Conway. My middle name is Murphy, so they've called me things like that ever since I was so high. Costigan indicated a length of approximately 12 inches. And now you'll probably live long enough, I hope, to hear me called a lot worse stuff than that. Don't talk that way. We're safe now, Con... Spud? It's nice that they like you so much, but they would, of course. She snuggled even closer, and both listened to what Rodebush was saying. Realise myself that it would look so bad... It Scared me as much as it did anyone. Yes, this is it. She really works. Thanks more than somewhat to Conway Costigan, by the way. But you had better transfer. If you'll get your things... Things is good, Costigan laughed, and Cleo giggled sunnily. We've made so many transfers already that what you see is all we've got. Bradley explained, we'll bring ourselves and we'll hurry. That Nevian is coming up fast. Is there anything on this ship you fellows want? Costigan asked. There may be, but we haven't any locks big enough to let her inside, and we haven't time to study her now. You might leave her controls in neutral, so that we can calculate her position if we should want her later on. All right. The three armor-clad figures stepped into the boys' open lock, the tractor beam was cut off, and the speedster flashed away from the now stationary supership. Better let formalities go for a while. Captain Bradley interrupted the general introductions taking place. I was scared out of nine years' growth when I saw you coming at us, and maybe I've still got the humps, but that Nevian is coming up fast, and if you don't already know, I can tell you that she's no light cruiser. 
That's so true, Costigan agreed. Have you fellows got enough stuff so that you think you can take him? You've got the legs on him anyway. You can certainly run if you want to. Run? Cleveland laughed. We've had a bone of our own to pick with that ship. We licked her to a standstill once until we burned out a set of generators, and since we got them fixed, we've been chasing her all over space. We were chasing her when we picked up your call. See there? She's doing the running. The Nevian was running, in truth. Her commander had seen and had recognised the great vessel which had flashed out of nowhere to the rescue of the three fugitives from Nevia, and having once been at grips with that vengeful super-dreadnought, he had little stomach for another encounter. Therefore, his side thrust was now being exerted in the opposite direction. He was frankly trying to put as much distance as possible between himself and Triplanetary's formidable warship. In vain. A light tractor was clamped, and the boys flashed up to close range again before Rodebush restored her inertia, and Cleveland brought the two vessels relatively to rest by increasing gradually his tractor's pull. And this time, the Nevian could not cut the tractor. Again, that shearing plane of force bit into it and tore at it, but it neither yielded nor broke. The rebuilt generators of number four were designed to carry the load, and they carried it. And again, Triplanetary's every mighty weapon was brought into play. The cans were thrown, ultra and infra beams were driven, the furious macro beam gnawed hungrily at the Nevian's defences, and one by one, those defences went down. In desperation, the enemy commander threw his every generator behind a polycyclic screen, only to see Cleveland's even more powerful drill bore relentlessly through it. After that puncturing, the end came soon. A secondary SX-7 beam was now in place on Mighty Ten's inner rings, and one fierce blast blew a hole completely through the Nevian cruiser. Into that hole entered Adlington's terrific bombs and their gruesome fellows, and where they entered, life departed. All defences vanished, and under the blasts of the boys' batteries now unopposed, the metal of the Nevian vessel exploded into a widely spreading cloud of vapour. Sparkling vapour, with perhaps here and there a droplet or two of material which had only been liquefied. So passed the sister ship, and Rodebush turned his plates upon the vessel of Narado. But that highly intelligent amphibian had seen all that had occurred. He had long since given over the pursuit of the speedster, and he did not rush in to do hopeless battle beside his fellow Nevians against the Tellurians. His analytical detectors had written down each detail of every weapon and of every screen employed, and even while prodigious streamers of force were raving out from his vessel, breaking her terrific progress and swinging her around in an immense circle back towards far Nevia, his scientists and mechanics were doubling and redoubling the power of his already titanic installations to match, and if possible to overmatch, those of Triplanetary's super-dreadnought. "'Do we kill him now, or do we let him suffer for a while longer?' Costigan demanded. "'I don't think so yet,' Rodebush replied. "'Would you, Cleve?' "'Not yet,' said Cleveland, grimly, reading the other's thought and agreeing with it. "'Let him pilot us to Nevia. We might not be able to find it without a guide.' While we're at it, we want to so pulverise that crowd that if they ever come near the Solarian system again, they'll think it's twenty minutes too soon. Thus it was that the boys, increasing her few dines of driving force at a rate just sufficient to match her quarry's acceleration, pursued the Nevian ship. Apparently exerting every effort, she never came quite within range of the fleeing raider, yet never was she so far behind that the Nevian spaceship was not in clear register upon her observation plates. 
nor was Narado alone in strengthening his vessel. Costigan knew well and respected highly the Nevian scientist captain, and at his suggestion much time was spent in reinforcing the supership's armament to the iron-driven limit of theoretical and mechanical possibility. In mid-space, however, the Nevian slowed down. "'What gives?' Rodebush demanded of the group at large. "'Not turn over time already, is it?' "'No,' Cleveland shook his head. "'Not for at least a day yet.' Cooking up something on Nevia is my guess, Costigan put in. If I know that lizard at all, he wired ahead. Specifications for the welcoming committee. We're getting there too fast, so he's stalling. Check? Check, Rodebush agreed. But there's no use of us waiting, so if you're sure you know which one of those stars up ahead is Nevia, do you, Cleve? Definitely. The only other thing is, then, shall we blow them out of the ether first? You might try, Costigan remarked. That is, if you're damned sure that you can run if you have to. Huh, run, demanded Rodebush. Just that, it's spelt R-U-N, run. I know these freaks better than you do. Believe me, Fritz, they've got what it takes. Could be, at that, Rodebush admitted, we'll play it safe. The boys leaped upon the Nevian, every weapon aflame. But as Costigan had expected, Narado's vessel was completely ready for any emergency. And unlike her sister ship, she was manned by scientists well-versed in the fundamental theory of the weapons with which they fought. Beams, rods and lances of energy flamed and flared. Planes and pencils cut, slashed and stabbed. Defensive screens glowed redly or flashed suddenly into intensely brilliant, coruscating incandescence. Crimson opacity struggled sullenly against the violet curtain of annihilation. Material projectiles and torpedoes were launched under full-beam control, only to be exploded harmlessly in mid-space, to be blasted into nothingness, or to disappear innocuously against impenetrable polycyclic screens. Even Cleveland's drill was ineffective. Both vessels were equipped completely with iron-driven mechanisms. Both were manned by scientists capable of wringing the highest possible measure of power from their installations. Neither could harm the other. The boys flashed away, reaching Nevia in minutes. Down into the crimson atmosphere she dropped, down towards the city which Costigan knew was Narado's home port. Hold up a bit, Costigan cautioned sharply. There's something down there that I don't like. As he spoke, there shot upwards from the city a multitude of flashing balls. The Nevians had mastered the secret of the explosive of the fishes of the greater deeps and were launching it in a veritable storm against the Tellurian visitor. Those, asked Rodebush calmly, the detonating balls of destruction were literally annihilating even the atmosphere beyond the polycyclic screen, but that barrier was scarcely affected. No, that. Costigan pointed out a hemispherical dome which, redly translucent, surrounded a group of buildings towering high above their neighbours. Neither those high towers nor those screens were there the last time I was in this town. Narado was stalling for time. And that's what they're doing down there. That's all those fireballs are for. Good sign, too. They aren't ready for us yet. we better take them while the taking's good. If they were ready for us, our play would be to get out of here while we're all in one piece. Narado had been in touch with the scientists of his city. He had been instructing them in the construction of converters and generators of such weight and power that they could crush even the defences of the supership. The mechanisms were not, however, ready. The entirely unsuspected possibilities of speed inherent in absolute inertialessness had not entered into Narado's calculations. 
Better drop a few cans down onto that dome, fellows, Roadbush suggested to his gunners. We can't, came Adlington's instant reply. No use trying it. That's a polycyclic screen. Can you drill it? If you can, I've got a real bomb here, the special we built, that will do the trick if you can protect it from them until it gets down into the water. I'll try it, Cleveland answered at a nod from the physicist. I couldn't drill Narado's polycyclics, but I couldn't use any momentum on him, couldn't ram him. He fell back with my thrust, but that screen down there can't back away from us, so maybe I can work on it. Get your special ready. Hang on, everyone. The boys looped upward, and from an altitude of miles dove straight down through a storm of force balls, beams and shells. A dive checked abruptly as the hollow tube of energy which was Cleveland's drill snarled savagely down ahead of her and struck the shielding hemisphere with a grinding, lightning-spitting shock. As it struck, backed by all the enormous momentum of the plunging spaceship and driven by the full power of her prodigious generators, it bored in, clawing and gouging viciously through the tissues of that rigid and unyielding barrier of pure energy. Then, mighty drill and plunging mass against iron-driven wall, eye-tearing and furiously spectacular warfare was waged. Well, it was for Triplanetary that day that its supership carried ample supplies of allotropic iron. Well, it was that her original gargantuan converters and generators had been doubled and quadrupled in power on the long Nevian way. For that ocean-girdled fortress was powered to withstand any conceivable assault. But the boys' power and momentum were now inconceivable, and every watt and every dine was solidly behind that hellishly flaming, that voraciously tearing, that irresistibly ravening cylinder of energy incredible. Through the Nevian shield that cylinder gnawed its frightful way, and down its protecting length there drove Adlington's special bomb. Special it was indeed, so great of girth that it could barely pass through the central orifice of Ten's mighty projector, so heavily charged with sensitised atomic iron that its detonation upon any planet would not have been considered for an instant if that planet's integrity meant anything to its attackers. Down the shielding pipe of force the special screamed under full propulsion, and beneath the surface of Nevia's ocean it plunged. "'Cut!' yelled Adlington, and as the scintillating drill expired, the bomber pressed his detonating switch. For moments, the effect of the explosion seemed unimportant. A dull, low rumble was all that was to be heard of a concussion that jarred Red Nevia to her very centre, and all that could be seen was a slow heaving of the water. But that heaving did not cease. Slowly, so slowly, it seemed to the observers now high in the heavens, the waters rose up and parted, revealing a vast chasm blown deep into the earth's rocky bed. Higher and higher the lazy mountains of water reared, effortlessly to pick up, to smash, to grind into fragments, and finally to toss aside every building, every structure, every scrap of material substance pertaining to the whole Nevian city. Flattened out, driven backward for miles, the buffeted waters were pressed, leaving exposed bare ground and broken rock where once had been the ocean's busy floor. Tremendous blasts of incandescent gas raved upward, jarring even the enormous mass of the supership poised so high above the site of the explosion. Then the displaced millions of tons of water rushed to make even more complete the already total destruction of the city. The raging torrents poured into that yawning cavern, filled it, 
and piled mountainously above it, receding and piling up again and again, causing tidal waves which swept a full half of Nevia's mighty watery globe. That city was silenced forever. My God! Cleveland was the first to break the awed, stunned silence. He licked his lips. But we had to do it. And at that, it's not as bad as what they did to Pittsburgh. They would have evacuated all except military personnel. Of course. What next? asked Raderbush. Look around, I suppose, to see if they have any more. Oh, no, Conway, no, don't let them. Cleo was sobbing openly. I'm going to my room and crawl under my bed. I'll see that sight for the rest of my life. Steady, Cleo. Costigan's arm tightened around her. We'll have to look, but we won't find any more. One, if they could have finished it, would have been enough. Again and again the boys circled the world. No more super-powered installations were being built, and, surprisingly enough, the Nevians made no demonstration of hostility. I wonder why, Rodebush mused. Of course, we aren't attacking them either, but you'd think... Do you suppose that they are waiting for Narado? Possibly. Costigan paused in thought. We'd better wait for him too. We can't leave things this way. But if we can't force engagement... A stalemate. Cleveland's voice was troubled. We'll do something, Costigan declared. This thing has got to be settled some way or another before we leave here. First, try talking. I've got an idea that... Anyway, it can't do any harm. And I know that he can hear and understand you. Narado arrived. Instead of attacking, his ship hung quietly poised a mile or two away from the equally undemonstrative boys. Rodebush directed a beam. Captain Narado, I am Rodebush of Triplanetary. What do you wish to do about this situation? I wish to talk to you. Nevian's voice came clearly from the speaker. You are, I now perceive... A much higher form of life than any of us had thought possible. A form, perhaps, as high in evolution as our own. It is a pity that we did not take the time for a full meeting of minds when we first neared your planet, so that much life, both Tellurian and Nevian, might have been spared. But what is past cannot be recalled. As reasoning beings, however, you will see the futility of continuing a combat which neither is capable of winning victory over the other. You may, of course, destroy more of our Nevian cities, in which case I should be compelled to go and destroy similarly upon your Earth. But to reasoning minds, such a course would be sheer stupidity. Rodebush cut the communicator beam. Does he mean it? he demanded of Costigan. It sounds perfectly reasonable, but... But fishy? Cleveland broke in, altogether too reasonable to be true. He means it. He means every word of it, Costigan assured his fellows. I had an idea that he would take it that way. That's the way they are. Reasonable, passionless, funny. They lack a lot of things that we have, but they've got stuff that I wish more of us Tellurians had too. Give me the plate. I'll talk for Triplanetary. And the beam was restored. Captain Narado. He greeted the Nevian commander. Having been with you and among your people, 
I know that you mean what you say and that you speak for your race. Similarly, I believe that I can speak for the Triplanetary Council, the governing body of three of the planets of our solar system, in saying that there is no need for any more conflict between our peoples. I also was compelled by circumstances to do certain things which I now wish could be undone. But as you have said, the past is past. Our two races have much to gain from each other by friendly exchanges of materials and ideas, while we can expect nothing but mutual extermination if we elect to continue this warfare. I offer you the friendship of Triplanetary. Will you release your screens and come aboard to sign a treaty? My screens are down. I will come. Rodebush likewise cut off his power, although somewhat apprehensively, and a Nevian lifeboat entered the main airlock of the boys. Then, at a table in the control room of Triplanetary's first supership, there was written the first intersystemic treaty. Upon one side were the three Nevians, amphibious, cone-headed, loop-necked, scaly, four-legged things to us monstrosities. Upon the other were human beings, air-breathing, round-headed, short-necked, smooth-bodied, two-legged creatures equally monstrous to the fastidious Nevians, yet each of these representatives of two races so different felt respect for the other race increase with him, minute by minute as the conversation went on. The Nevians had destroyed Pittsburgh, but Adlington's bomb had blown an important Nevian city completely out of existence. One Nevian vessel had wiped out a Triplanetarian fleet, but Costigan had depopulated one Nevian city, had seriously damaged another, and had beamed down many Nevian ships. Therefore, loss of life and material damage could be balanced off. The Solarian system was rich in iron, to which the Nevians were welcome. Red Nevia possessed abundant stores of substances which, upon Earth, were either rare or of vital importance, or both. Therefore, commerce was to be encouraged. The Nevians had knowledge and skills unknown to earthly science, but were entirely ignorant of many things commonplace to us. Therefore, interchange of students and of books was highly desirable, and so on. Thus was signed the Triplanetario-Nevian Treaty of Eternal Peace. Narado and his two companions were escorted ceremoniously to their vessel, and the boys took off inertialess for Earth, bearing the good news that the Nevian menace was no more. Cleo, now a hardened spacehound, immune even to the horrible nausea of inertialessness, wriggled lithely in the curve of Costigan's arm and laughed up at him. You can talk all you want to, Conway Murphy Spud Costigan, but I don't like them the least little bit. They give me goosebumps all over. I suppose they really are estimable folks, talented, cultured and everything, but just the same... I'll bet that it will be a long, long time before anybody on Earth will truly, truly like them. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the finale of Triplanetary by E.E. E. Doc Smith. If you did, then please consider supporting The Well Told Tale on Patreon at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. Also, if you're interested, I'm making these longer stories available as single downloadable files over at thewelltoldtale.net, eliminating the breaks between episodes. Again, there's a link in the description. I'll be back next week with something completely different, but equally wonderful. 
I hope you can join me.